The following podcast is part of the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network. Exploring our oneness with spirit and each other. Unity Online Radio. Thank you for tuning in for this Unity Partner Program. Unity Online Radio partners with spiritual leaders from organizations whose mission and messages complement Unity's. We are pleased to bring you this program on Unity Online Radio, the voice of an awakening world. Welcome to Main Street Vegan with host Victoria Moran. Victoria is an author, inspirational speaker, and a certified holistic health counselor and vegan lifestyle coach. She's here to entertain, educate, and inspire you on your journey to look and feel amazing, eat extraordinary food, help animals, and create a physical body perfectly attuned to spiritual growth. Now, let's get this party started. Here is your host, Victoria Moran. Welcome, everybody, to today's episode when I'll be speaking with uber dietitian Jenny Messina and her co-author and my literary mentor, Patty Brightman, about their new book from Lantern Books. Oh, I love Lantern Books. Everything they do is so wonderful. Even Vegans Die. Now, I've done this program from a variety of hotel rooms in the U.S., in the U.K., but this is a first I'm coming to you from the Ocean Jade Health Retreat in South Florida, where I am on a water-only fast under the supervision of Dr. Frank Sabatino. He was most recently a guest on our podcast on January 11th of this year. If you want to check that out, just go to the Main Street Vegan Podcast Archives. He was also a guest in 2016 and 2012. You can see I'm a fan. Well, I am on day three of the fast, and everybody says it gets better after the first few days. (laughs) So I have that to look forward to. But in truth, it's been very peaceful so far, and I feel really blessed to be here on what I believe to be both a healing and enlightening journey. I'll keep you posted. And oh my gosh, second only to a great big green juice and something else wonderful to eat is that I get to talk to these amazing vegans, amazing friends, women that I admire so, so much. So I'm doing this because I want to live the best possible life all my life. But I'm well aware that even vegans and even whole food plant-based eaters, and even raw fooders, and even people who do, and I'm putting this in quotes, everything right, get sick and injured. We run into obstacles, and one day, even the fittest among us will leave this world for the next adventure. These are issues addressed in exquisite writing and with great heart in the book Even Vegans Die by my two guests, and a third co-author who had to travel today and couldn't be with us, Carol J. Adams. So it is my pleasure now to introduce Jenny Messina, whom you likely know from her website and her power blog, TheVeganRD.com. 
And her many books, including Vegan for Life, co-authored with Jack Norris, R.D., that is required reading for all students coming to Main Street Vegan Academy. I don't know if you knew that, Ginny. And I did vegan- not know that. <laughs> well, it is. And Vegan for Her, co-authored by last week's co-host, and guest, J.L. Fields, Ginny is a registered dietitian with more than 25 years experience in vegan nutrition, a founding member of the Vegetarian Nutrition Dietetic Practice Group, and co-author of the first vegetarian textbook for health professionals, The Dietitian's Guide to Vegetarian Diets. Ginny serves on the board of directors of Veg Fund, Eden Animal Sanctuary, and Alley Cat Rescue, and on the advisory boards of Veg Youth, One Step for Animals, the Vegan Trade Council, and the True Health Initiative. So, Ginny, before I introduce Patty, I'd like to get your take on why this new book, Even Vegans Die, is important. Well, you know, we had a couple of, go- first of all, Victoria, thank you for that lovely introduction and, and, and for your, your wonderful comments about the book. We had a, a couple of goals in writing the book, and one was to take the shame out of illness for vegans by acknowledging that a vegan diet is not a guarantee that you won't get sick. And we also wanted to help vegans plan for the future, and by acknowledging that a vegan diet doesn't make us bulletproof against disease, we're actually more likely to make better decisions about our health and about the legacy that we're going to leave. So our, our hope was that in writing this book, we would help vegans be better activists and take better care of themselves and also that we can find ways to take the shame out of illness for vegans. And you've done a beautiful job. You write with so much compassion. Well, thank so you. I, I, I want to ask Patty the same question, but first I want to let everybody uh, know who Patty is if they haven't met her before. Patty Brightman is the co-founder of Dharma Voices for Animals, reminding practitioners of Buddhism of their faith's message of compassion to all beings. She's a former literary agent who brought into print such vegans as Howard Lyman, Ingrid Newkirk, Dr. Neil Barnard, and me. Patty is also the co-author of three earlier books, How to Say No Without Feeling Guilty, Never Too Late to Go Vegan, and how to eat like a vegetarian, even if you never want to be one. The perfect cookbook for the people in your world who say they'll never give up animal products, but they love everything you cook. Hi, Patty. Hi, Victoria. Thank you so much for having us on, and thank you for saying such nice things about our book and my well, co-author. <laughs> it's, it's a great one. So chime in. Why did well, you want to be part of Even Vegan Style? I wanted to write a book about the fact that we don't live forever because a very dear friend of mine died, and I was the executor of his estate. And it was a very strange situation. I know you're familiar with this, too. You've had loved ones die. When you have to take care of business and take care of closing accounts and getting death certificates and doing all the business side of somebody's death, when your heart is broken and you're in the midst of grief. And so many people don't understand what it's like to be in mourning, that I wanted to make sure that vegans at least did what my friend did. What my friend did in all the grief and in all the anger and all of the the um, immediacy of, of a loss, I was angry, I was hurt, I was confused, I was just beside myself. I was grateful to him for at least having done the paperwork. I was so happy that he had had a will, that he had an advanced directive, he had named a durable power of attorney for health care decisions. So my role was at least spelled out for me. I knew what was expected of me. It wasn't just starting from scratch and trying to figure out what I had to do. 
And I realize so many vegans think they're going to live forever that I realize we need to remind them that everyone should have a will. Everyone should have an advanced directive. Everybody is going to die, and we, lo- we live in denial of that. Not just vegans. Everyone lives in denial of that. But vegans especially think that they're protected from mortality and old age and sickness. And it's going to happen. Something's going to get us. It may be a bus. It may be a disease. It may be what's called a natural death, but nobody's going to get out alive, as Jim Morrison said. No one gets out alive. So I thought it was important to remind vegans that we have to take good care of our future plans, where we're going to leave our things. If we have animals at home and we get a broken leg on the way home and have to go to the hospital to have it set, who has the key to our apartment to get in and walk the dog? Who knows how to feed the cat? Who knows what animals are in our house that need to be taken care of if we have to spend the night in the hospital or if we never come home? So all those things were important to remind um, vegans because most of us just think that we're going to be fine and happy forever. Well, and yes, and there's also in the vegan world this this awful shame if you die before I think ninety. I, and, and the, the 80s are kind of okay. You know, you can kind of die in your 80s and it's not a horrible thing. But anybody who dies before they are seriously ancient, we hear, why did that happen? What did he do wrong? So you guys address that too. Either one of well, you, feel it. free to jump in. Whenever I hear that a vegan died, especially a vegan I looked up to, like when Jay Dinshaw died or when Rin Berry died, like people I know and love and activists who, who were the vegans that I modeled my veganism after, when I hear that they died, it feels like the whole world is upside down. Like, how is that possible? It feels like we've been betrayed. It feels like something didn't work that was supposed to work. And I think it happens because we want to find a reason they died so that we can distance ourselves from the reality of our mortality. We want to be able to say, oh, well, he didn't take B12, or he didn't eat enough real dark leafy greens, or she didn't exercise enough with her veganism. We find an excuse for what they did so-called wrong so that we don't have to admit that we're all vulnerable. And it's also, uh, you know, and of course, this is, I'm sorry. Yeah, it's and of course it's not no. just about about dying. You know, once once vegans die, they don't you know they don't feel any shame about anything. Of course, but in writing this book, we talked with many many vegans who are suffering from chronic illnesses, and there's a huge sense of shame around that because because we do pre you know in the in the vegan community we often hear this message that a vegan diet is going to make you invincible that you if you do it the right way you won't get sick or you won't be over weight. You don't, you know, you're not going to, or you're not going to have any kind of problems whatsoever. That's the message that we hear in the vegan community so that when people are overweight or they do get sick, they feel a sense of shame and they feel alienated from the vegan community. And that was something that we really wanted to address. Well, I'm glad you did because I think many of us have have gone through it. And, And as you know, I've been kind of struggling with this whole issue because I think on the one hand, Perhaps I don't understand it fully um, because I am an ethical vegan, but I'm also a health vegan because when I got into it, it was like our responsibility to take the best care of our health that we could, not to make us immortal, but simply so that we could show, you know, we're doing as well as anybody else. (laughs) 
because at that time, I mean, I knew people who were having their children taken away just because there was no cow's milk in the refrigerator. So it was really important to learn about nutrition and do the very best we could. And yet I feel that this idea of it, it's a sin to get sick, it's a sin to die, is something that's come much more recently. Well, there's a movement recently that that makes veganism go on parallel tracks. There are vegans who just want to save animals and don't really think about their health. Usually, I shouldn't say usually, I see this among young people especially. Young people who become vegans just want to get a vegan substitute for everything they're eating non-vegan. And so a lot of vegans become vegans and they eat cupcakes every day and they eat candy every day and they are delighting in the fact that you can now get vegan ice cream. And it becomes just a replacement of every not necessarily healthy food that wasn't vegan with a not necessarily healthy food that is vegan. This isn't to say that we can't all indulge in treats once in a while, but as we age, we realize we do have to care for this body. And vegans, as they age, go on parallel tracks. Some become health conscious. Some become very dedicated to the kind of diet that some doctors are recommending, which is a no added oils, no added fat, totally unprocessed, whole foods, plant-based diet. And then even they shame one another if once in a while one of their adherents will have a cupcake. Even they shame one another if one of their adherents you know, goes on vacation and doesn't stay on a whole foods plant-based diet, but goes to a processed food plant-based diet for a few days. So even among vegans who are eating healthy, they're shaming. But the parallel tracks are, I think there's no bad way to be a vegan. I think as long as you're not eating animal products, you're not harming animals, I think it's good. But as Ginny points out, we can reduce our risk for many chronic diseases with a, with a healthy vegan diet. And what these doctors are telling us is you can reduce, reduce your risks and sometimes reverse heart disease with a very, very healthy vegan diet. So even within the vegan community, there, there are arguments about, is this too extreme? Is this what everyone should be encouraged to do? Should we just tell everyone the facts and let people decide? Should we only tell people a little bit because they're only going to go a little bit? Or should we tell them everything and some will go all the way? It's an interesting debate, and I see it landing somewhere between the dietitians and the doctors. The vegan doctors don't seem to like the advice of the vegan dietitians, where the vegan dietitians are saying it has to be proven with double-blind placebo studies, and the doctors are saying, I have clinical evidence from hundreds of patients, if not thousands of patients, and I'm going with my own two eyes and my clinical evidence, even if it hasn't been published in a peer-reviewed journal. So that's where I see the big debate falling and why there's so much confusion around this. Where are you on this, Jenny? Well, I think, you know, it's a, it's, Patty is correct that this is a very complicated area. Um, the issue for me, I'm in the, the double-blind study category. I want to see actual proof before, um, before we tell people that this is the, the, the only way or the, or the best way to eat or the, the best way to live. Certainly, we are always operating with imperfect information, and so we have to go with what we know and make recommendations based on that. But... Um, I think that when we look at the actual evidence, we see that it is just not possible to tell people exactly what they need to eat in order to prevent or or reverse disease. We don't have the studies for that. We don't we don't have the evidence, and so I think that um, we can give guidelines on how to eat. We can make uh, good recommendations about 
eating a diet that is based primarily on whole plant foods. We can't say that you need to give up added fats in order to be healthy because the evidence just doesn't support that. We can't say that you can never have vegetarian meats, uh, you know, veggie burgers and veggie hot dogs because the evidence doesn't support that. We have no evidence that vegans who never eat these foods are healthier than vegans who include these foods in, in their diet sometimes. So I think that we have to kind of take a middle road here. We want vegans to be as healthy as possible. We want to give vegans the best information for that. But we have to acknowledge that our information is imperfect, and we have to work from, from that vantage point. Well, that's well, something I, I learned a... from – I'm sorry, go ahead, go ahead Victoria. No, I wanted you... to say I learned many years ago from Jack Norris, Ginny's co-author, on another book, who's also a registered dietitian, that for every study that shows one thing, there'll be studies that show the opposite. And when Ginny says it's an impure science, she's right. There's no published evidence that's ironclad, bulletproof, this is what you eat and this is what happens, because studies come out that contradict it. And Jack used to frustrate me when he told me the whole picture, because I wanted the picture to say you have to eat vegan. And his, he showed me that studies don't conclusively or unanimously say that. On the other hand, what Ginny calls evidence, and I understand this is exactly what registered dietitians have to do, and this is what they're trained to do, science-based or evidence-based science, rather, is important. But when she says evidence, it means published studies that can conclude, you know, what's best. When the doctors say evidence, it's their clinical experience in their white coats when patients come to see them. They've seen people give up medication for diabetes. They've seen people give up medication for heart disease. They've seen people thrive as cancer survivors who might not have otherwise if they hadn't gone on that diet. So it's an interesting, it's an interesting dichotomy between what counts as evidence. There's, there's evidence that's peer-reviewed in double-blind studies, and that, of course, we can't get unanimity on because the studies will contradict one another. And then there's the evidence of doctors who see in their own practice that people thrive on the no-oil-added, no-processed-food-added kind of diet. And so I think this is an interesting case of they're both right. Both people are right. They're, both sides of the argument are right, which to me is good news because you can't do it wrong. Whichever way you go, you're going to be healthy. Well, Jenny mentioned the mock meats, which I just think are fabulous. I love listening to Bruce Friedrich, who's involved with the, the faux meats and even the lab-grown meats, which I don't care to eat, but I know a whole lot of omnivores out there would. And he tells this lovely tale of how many thousands and thousands of horses were on the streets of New York City in 1895, and there was excrement everywhere, and there were horse corpses, and this was the way it was in every city in America. And all of a sudden, along comes Henry Ford, and by 1905, there were Almost no horses on the streets of New York City, and the same was true in all these other cities. Not because people had just decided that they all of a sudden needed to be kind to horses, but because there was a better alternative. So I don't have a problem at all with faux meats, and yet I hear this term, and this is what I want to ask you guys, a definition of the term junk food vegan, because a lot of people use that term when they mean people who eat whole wheat bread and some faux meats, and, you know, some kind of comfort food. To me, I think you can be a junk food vegan, but that, to me, is somebody who's living on potato chips and Coca-Cola. So help me out. What is a junk food vegan? And just, I guess that's the question. 
I don't feel qualified to answer that. I'm going to let Ginny go with that. Well, of course, you know, I have no idea where we would draw the line. You know, how many servings of veggie meats and ice cream and cup- cupcakes do you need to have per day be- before you're called a junk food vegan? That's that's a hard question to answer. But um, I think we know and when we see one, you know, somebody who does eat potato chips and, and drink Coke all day long is definitely a junk food vegan. I don't see very many vegans who eat like that. In my experience, most of us, yeah, most of us are not doing that. You know, again, maybe some young people, you know, when you're young, you're invincible. You can do and eat whatever you want and, and, you know, not feel that you need to worry about that, whether you're vegan or omnivore. So, uh, you, you know, maybe in, in some younger people, there are, are some real junk food vegans. But what I see mostly are vegans who are eating mostly a healthy diet, um, whole plant foods, but are including some veggie meats in that diet diet, maybe cooking some of their, their vegetables in a little bit of olive oil and having a, an occasional cupcake. And, you know, that's not a junk food vegan. Having some you treats now and then. You just described my diet, some, Jenny. Yeah, it's my diet too. And, you know, having some treats, having, a, a, you know, a few servings of processed foods a day in the context of a mostly unprocessed diet, that's a healthy way of eating. And I think that the thing that we also need to realize when we look at the actual research is that there may be some advantages to some of these foods that people are calling vegan junk foods. Not, um, not potato chips and, and Oreos. I'm sorry to say that uh, nobody's come up with any, any health advantages to, to eating those foods. But there is some research showing that uh, women, Seventh-day Adventist women who consume more veggie meats have better bone strength, better bone health. And we certainly see studies showing that um, higher fat diets are associated with lower risk for heart disease. So it's complicated. It's, you know, this whole big mess of, of nutrition is complicated, and we need to be careful about calling foods toxic and shaming vegans about their food choices, um, you know, around some of these foods that can fit into a healthy vegan diet for most of us. Now, you I said jump something that something. I think... Can you hold that, Patty, because I want to just follow up on something Jenny said. There are uh-huh. probably listeners to, of, to the podcast right now falling off the treadmill because you said evidence that higher fat diets can prevent heart disease. Did you say that? And if so, please I did explain. say that. I did say okay. that. That is the that is the consensus of opinion. Um, not necessarily that higher fat diets are better for heart disease, although they may be for some people. Um, but that plant fats, um, unsaturated fats, re, uh, replacing saturated fat with plant fats is probably better for um, reducing blood cholesterol levels, for the, the health of arteries than replacing saturated fat with carbohydrates. And that's not... Uh, yeah. That that's that, that's pretty widely accepted in in the nutrition community. Maybe not so much. Maybe vegans don't hear about it so much. But among we don't. professional nutritionists, it's it's pretty. It's basically the the status quo. When you say plant fats, Jenny, do you mean olive oil or do you mean avocados and nuts? I mean um, all plant fats: um, olive oil, canola oil, avocado, nuts, soy foods. It's it's the it's the polyunsaturated it's mostly it's the polyunsaturated fat that that you get from those foods. Uh-huh. Wow. <laughs> well, I, well, I just sit here stunned for a while, Patty. You were going to say something. 
I was going to say another reason that we wrote this book, and I find this highly ironic. As we were writing it, I just couldn't get over the irony of it. Vegans are so committed to being compassionate to other beings. We are so compassionate to our companion animals and to the animals that we don't want to eat that are raised on farms. We're so compassionate to every animal we encounter, and yet our book is a reminder that that compassion has to include other humans, whether they're vegan or not. And I found irony in that because we, we pride ourselves on being so compassionate and yet we don't know how to show up for one another and how to support one another. And more to the point, we don't know how to accept care when we need care. We're ashamed to need care. So not only is there fat shaming and disease shaming going on, there's care shaming. We're embarrassed if somebody needs to help us. If we're hurting and people ask, what can I do to help you? We're like, oh, I'm fine. I'm fine. I don't need any help. One of the myths that we bust in the book is that we are all interdependent beings. None of us is autonomous. None of us is independent in the way the American dream makes you think you're supposed to be. And so we talk about showing up for one another and being a good caregiver and being a good listener and not saying, like, what did you do wrong when your friend who's a vegan says, oh, I got cancer. You don't say, what did you do wrong? You say, oh, I'm so sorry to hear that. Do you want to talk about it? Or you say... Do you need meal delivery? I'm happy to start organizing your friends to bring you meals. Or do you need rides to your treatment? I'm happy to give you rides or arrange them. There are ways to be helpful and to show up that don't involve shaming. And what I learned in writing the book was some of this disease shaming comes from the fact that we want to distance ourselves from being vulnerable to the same thing that person has. But in fact, we have to remind readers the compassion we extend to so many beings has to be turned also to fellow humans. And we have a wonderful couple of chapters on caregiving. You, you do. And I, I love also that you talk in the book about extending compassion to yourself. I know something as simple as having done this show for five years now, I have done it many times when I've had a cold. And invariably, somebody will say, you really sounded bad. <laughs> <laughs> You know, and, and I feel like, oh, oh, I, I'm, you know, not standing up for the cause. So to just be able to say, I totally stand up for this cause and sometimes I get a cold, deal with it. Yeah, this book is really helpful, even even for diseases that aren't going to kill us. So you have a foreword for this book written by the most unlikely person ever, <laughs> one would think. Um someone who wrote a book called How Not to Die, which I realize is tongue-in-cheek, but which some people had said, you know, is just a way to reinforce some of these uh, stereotypes and things that don't need. So how did you watch Dr. Gerber, and what did he tell you? What I love about his forward is he told us that his book is not called How to Not Die. It's called How Not to Die. He teaches in his book how to, how to, there's a difference, there's a huge difference with the placement of that word. How to not die isn't a book that can be written with any credibility because we'll all die. But how not to die, he goes through the top 25 most common causes of death in North America and teaches you how to reduce your risk for each of them. And he loves our book because we're saying, Yes, you're still going to die. And he says that the both books should be bookends on your shelf. His book teaches you how to live well, and our book teaches you how to die well. And I was Perfect. thrilled that he was willing That's to write our forward. That's everything. Yeah. And even your cover yeah. has some similar images. 
That was well, intentional. It does. Yeah, we we wanted to have a little bit of fun with that. <laughs> <laughs> And, and that's something that when, when people find your book who haven't read his book, they won't even know. That's, <laughs> that's right. <laughs> Fascinating. It's, so I find so it I find it really exciting that there are so many fonts that use vegetables. We have different fonts entirely, and yet they're both vegetable fonts. I love it. I love it. I, I'm very picky about fonts, but all the ones that use vegetables, <laughs> I find pleasing. So we're going to die at some point, and those of us who are fortunate will get to be old before we die. So what about veganism as the fountain of youth? Jenny, I know this is something that, that uh, you write about and think about. Yes, it, it is something it's something that I think about. And, we, you know, we looked at uh, a really popular image in vegan advocacy, which is that, you know, picture of that wonderful picture of Christy Brinkley at age 61 in a bathing suit looking absolutely fantastic. And um, I don't remember what the what the tagline is, but the implication is that Christy looks like that because she's vegan. And I think that we all know that Christy looks like that because she's gorgeous and she has lots of money and um, also access to uh, photo brushing and, and, and things like that. And certainly lifestyle impacts how we age on the inside and also on the outside. It affects our skin and it affects wrinkles in our hair and, and lots of, of things that, that are involved in our appearance. But a vegan diet is not a fountain of youth. Vegans are going to get old. If, as you said, if we're lucky, we're going to get old just like everybody else. I, I have wrinkles. I have gray hair. And, um, the, you know, I eat a, a healthy diet, but my healthy diet is, is not a fountain of youth. And I think that this is really an important topic for vegans to, to address because this is a type of shaming that also tends to be sexist and ageist. What, you know, why would we care what vegans look like as they get older? You know, we are saving animals. We are, are part of this wonderful movement. And what we look like as we age is, is really immaterial. So um, I think that it's, it's something that we need to address in the vegan community. It's just as important as disease shaming and, and body shaming, this idea of age shaming. Mm. I remember when you, I think it was in your blog where you wrote about the Christy Brinkley picture and you said, well, I'm 61 and I don't look like that. <laughs> I don't. You know, Christy Brinkley is in the 99th percentile of beautiful. Like right. Einstein is in the 99th percentile of brain. And we don't right. say to ourselves, oh, why can't I come up with something like the theory of relativity? What is wrong with me? Maybe I need to eat better. <laughs> so, Patty, um, You've talked about how vegans can help the environment while they're making their choices about cremation or burial or these things that everybody needs to think about or else, as you've said, it'll be left for those closest to them to think about. So uh, tell us about those things. Well, it's interesting. Um, in researching the book, I found out that the most popular way that most people dispose of their bodies after they die today is, in the United States is cremation, which when I was growing up was hardly ever done. When I was growing up, everybody's body was buried. But it turns out that now what's much more popular is cremation. And yet, cremation is not great for the environment. And I know a lot of vegans care about the environment, and a lot of us are vegans because, 
eating a plant-based diet reduces the harm being done with animal agriculture. So I think it's really interesting to know that cremation releases all kinds of toxins into the body, not into the body, into the atmosphere. And if you have mercury in your teeth, it lets the mercury into the atmosphere. And it's just an interesting use of greenhouse, greenhouse gas emissions, too, because you have to keep the furnace very hot for a very long time when the body is being cremated. So it's not really a green method of disposing of your body. So we recommend two things in the book as a more green method of getting, of uh, dealing with your remains and making decisions before you die of what you want your remains to do. First, we recommend you become an organ donor. And second, we recommend you will your body to science, where if your body is willed to a teaching hospital, it can be used for students to learn on rather than having them kill animals and try to dissect and learn from animals. Additionally, there's something called a green burial, which is an ecological burial in a coffin that's made of something very biodegradable, either cardboard or plain pine wood with no paint, no lacquer, no chemicals. The body is never, um, oh, what's the word where they use formaldehyde? The body is never preserved. The body is never involved in a a green burial because you don't want to put those chemicals into the earth. And there is a green burial council that talks about how a green burial reduces carbon emissions, it protects workers' health, it conserves natural resources, and it preserves habitat. So when you're buried in a green burial, you're, you're wearing only a shroud or clothing made of cotton or linen, a natural fabric, and the casket doesn't have any chemicals on it. Your body isn't preserved with chemicals. And so you go back to the earth, and eventually your body and the casket ends up fertilizing the earth. And very often a tree is planted or greenery is preserved, or green, instead of a headstone, instead of something permanent, the impermanence of life is reinforced because you know that that same land will be available for someone else's burial in another hundred years. It's just an interesting I... concept that was new to me. Green burials were brand new to me, and I found out even green pet burials are happening now. There's a green pet burial association. And, and um, we are the ultimate we'll, activist, even after death. Yes, and, <laughs> exactly. we, also, and we also talked, to, talked about whole family burials, and, and this is not a widely available option, but th- there are increasing options to, to have your pets buried with you after, you know, that everybody, as, as everyone dies, that, that they can all be buried together and pets and, and humans together, which I just are find very serious? soothing. That's the best yeah. thing I've ever heard. <laughs> I know, I know. Well, because pets are part of our family, and the idea that they're not allowed to be buried with the rest of the family just doesn't make sense. You know, it doesn't. And what a lovely way to go to break. Oh, Forbes, we can be together forever. Okay, (laughs) stay with us. We will be back with more with Jenny Messina, Patty Brightman, and even vegans die after these messages. Wouldn't you like to share the programs that inspire you most with audiences around the world? That's easier than ever with mobile giving. Just text Unity Radio to 72727 and help us continue offering spiritual programs that change lives.
what if you could experience vibrant health, help heal the planet, and be a great friend to God's animal kingdom through simple choices you make at breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Authors Victoria and Adair Moran say you can do this easily, affordably, and deliciously in their new book, Main Street Vegan. Everything you need to know to eat healthfully and live compassionately in a real world. Loaded with practical tips, straightforward information, and fabulous recipes, Main Street Vegan will help you on your journey toward a plant-based diet. The perks include more energy, an easy way to keep your weight where you want it, feeling younger as you grow older, and maybe even a boost to your spiritual life. Purchase Main Street Vegan from BN.com, Amazon.com, or your favorite bookseller. of thousands of listeners like you have been transformed through the ministry of Paulette Pipe and her program, Touching the Stillness, one of the longest-running programs on Unity Online Radio. Paulette's latest album of guided meditations, Blissful Stillness, is a new and different experience. The mystical quality of her beautiful voice will reverberate through a Zen-style meditation, a mudra meditation, which are yoga hand positions to deepen your practice, and guided meditations, which we know and love. It features a new instrumental sound by Kelly Hunt with a bonus track by Kathy Zavada. Experience a blissful immersion into quiet and stillness by purchasing your own copy at Shop. Dot unityonline.org You're listening to Main Street Vegan with Victoria Moran. If you have questions or comments about today's topic or any other area of interest, we invite you to follow Victoria underscore Moran on Twitter or email her at MainStreetVegan at UnityOnlineRadio.org. Now, back to Main Street Vegan. Welcome back, all my lovely listeners. I'm so grateful that you're taking this hour with us and with two of my favorite women in the world, Jenny Messina, RDMPH, and Patty Brightman, probably, no, not probably, one of the people who has changed my life. You know how Dr. Phil says you write down the seven people who changed your life? Patty would so be on that list for me. I can never oh. thank you enough. Uh, and thank I you, always Victoria. like to share at this time in the program what is happening this week on the MainStreetVegan.net blog. And it is a blog by me that is called Veganism and Health the way to connect or something like that. I'm fasting. I can't remember the title. But what it is about is something that I would have always said was a statement. Oh, yeah, you know, uh, ethics and health, that, that veganism brings them together. But I put a question mark after that because of some of the things we've been talking about today. You know, we don't want our movement to be all divided. So is it possible to kind of bring these together? So that's this week at MainStreetVegan.net slash blog. 
I hope you'll read. I hope you'll enjoy. And thank you so much for checking that out. And that brings me to another question for my two guests today. Do you see a divisiveness in our movement? I mean, in our country now, which is so incredibly divided, I just think every day about how can we communicate? How can we come to understand people who see things differently? And then I look right here in our vegan world and I seem to see some of that same divisiveness. Do you see that? And if you do, what should we do about it? Well, the first half of your question is so much easier to answer than the second half. I I don't know what we can do about it, but I definitely see it. There are people accusing others in the movement of not being purist enough, of working with the enemy, you know, being on the boards of, of organizations that harm animals, of having people on their boards from organizations that harm animals. And people want to be purist about vegan. There are people who want to be so purist that they won't have contact with or learn from or have conversations with people who are still in, working in animal agriculture. And they don't see small steps as the solution. There's a book out now called Reducitarianism about how effective it would be for the planet if everybody just cut in half the number of animal products they ate. If everyone just cut it in half, we'd make huge progress in not breeding and harming so many animals. And yet there are purists who say that's not good enough. We have to go vegan. We shouldn't be telling people to reduce. We should be telling them to eliminate animal foods. So I see that rift. I see that rift, and I do not have any idea how we could heal it. Now, Jenny and I both have essays in that Reducitarian book, The Reducitarian Solution. So, Jenny, what what rift do you see and do you have any healing thoughts? Well, I, I don't know about healing thoughts. I see lots of rifts, and I think that I, I actually... It, it can be very difficult to to experience these, but I think that we also have to remember that veganism is a relatively new social justice movement, and people have different ideas about how we should go about liberating animals or what or what it even means to liberate animals and I think that um, where the healing comes in is if it's at all possible is to recognize that none of us is an expert on how we create this vegan world, what steps we need to take. We're kind of, we're flying blind a little bit here. And so we really need to consider that there might be many different way tactics for achieving this, that some of them might be wrong, some of them might be right, but it's going to take some time to figure that out. And I think just being respectful of the fact that, um, that we have different ideas about how to approach this. Something I oh, learned I in think Buddhism. So too. Yes, go ahead. Something, something I learned in Buddhism is we suffer when we hold our thoughts and opinions too tightly. We may mm. have a strong opinion on this, mm-hmm. but when we, when we hold that opinion as if it's really right and it's the only opinion and it's no one else is right because they don't agree with me and this opinion defines me and, and my identity is so closely wrapped up with this opinion, when we hold our views and opinions too tightly, we suffer. Wow. That's, that's a tweet. When we hold our opinions too tightly, (laughs) we suffer. Wow. So, um, Patty, why is it important to keep our radar out for ways that we exclude people from the movement? Well, the movement needs everyone. The movement needs to reflect the, 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 the diversity of people. 
There are short people, tall people, large people, small people. There are people of color. There are people who are straight or gay or trans or non-gendered. The, the movement needs everybody so that we reflect the fact that everybody can do this. That's why we wrote Never Too Late to Go Vegan, because people said, oh, don't even bother trying to talk to people over 50. You don't, they don't, won't save as many animals if they go vegan at 50. As you, if you talk to college kids, they have a whole life of saving animals. You can't dismiss anyone, not any group of people and not any individual. So it's important to be inclusive in every way you can think of being inclusive. Every single human being we meet has something to offer us. And every vegan we meet has something to offer the movement. We cannot afford to diminish our movement by saying someone doesn't belong on the picket line in front of the slaughterhouse with us because she doesn't look like Christy Brinkley or because she's too old or because the color of her skin doesn't match ours. It would be ridiculous to start excluding people from our movement. And also, we have to be welcoming to the veg curious and the reducitarians and the flexitarians and anyone who finds common cause with not wanting to harm animals None of, very few of us, I can't say none of us, very few of us grew up as vegans. We found it when the time was right for us to find it. And we probably heard the message and weren't ready to hear the message many times. And if someone had given up on us, we might never have become vegan. So I think it's important to realize we may be the hundredth person who's telling someone about veganism, or we may be the third, and it may take 150 times before they actually are ready to hear it. So we can't afford to exclude anyone, and that's why it's important. I think this is also true politically. I I wrote an editorial, which no paper so far has been willing to print, (laughs) that, that is about maybe animals are the best way that we can communicate with people who see so many other things differently. Not that everybody's vegan, but just animals are so neutral and so loving that, you know, maybe we can start with companion animals and, and kind of go from there. It just, it seems to me like a good idea. But um, It's a great idea. Of- it is a great idea. And that's, that is, people bond over animals so quickly mm-hmm. and so deeply, even when they have nothing else in common, and especially companion animals, but, but you know, wildlife, all kinds of animals. So I don't understand why nobody would, would publish that editorial. It sounds, it sounds brilliant to me. Well, well, I know why. I, I heard on the radio last night, Van Jones was on the radio last night, and he was talking about how he had a show where he did um, an argument with a very conservative, I forgot who it was, but he and a very conservative commentator would go at it for like 25 minutes, and they would both be on opposite sides of the issues. And then in the last five minutes, they would find common ground. They'd say, after this break, come back and see how they find common ground. The ratings plummeted. But the ratings plummeted as soon as they added that segment. It was a five-minute segment at the end of the show that showed what they agree on and how they could work together on something positive. And as soon as they weren't at each other's throats, the ratings went down, and the producers of the show showed them people want controversy. People like acrimony. People don't want to read about peaceful, happy solutions. And so the, the profit motive and the fact that they're not going to make as much money if you're writing essays about how we can all get along as you do about how we're at each other's throats, it's driving the media. It's so sad to hear that. I was heartsick to hear that. That is really sad because there's probably never been a time when we need to talk with each other and understand each other. Oh, well, okay. Well, even back, well, in, back in the Vietnam War years, they had um, Archie Bunker. 
And people yes. love that show because the generations yeah. did not see eye to eye. If they had been a happy couple, Father Knows Best would not have thrived in the 1970s. Yeah. <laughs> True. Wow. So we need to, Gosh, we somehow need to take so that in. We, we need to somehow take that information and, and figure out how to use it to, to promote veganism and, and different attitudes towards animals. I'm not sure mm-hmm. how we do that. Well, maybe the animals will show us. I mean, I, I remember I was eating in a sidewalk cafe in, in New York last summer, and there was an injured pigeon, and everybody mobilized. I mean, every meal was left on tables. Everybody was, you you call somebody, and you, you find where the wild bird fund is, and you hail a taxi, and you get a box from the kitchen. And, of course, as soon as the pigeon was taken care of, you know, people went back to their chicken salad. And yet, <laughs> when people really think about an animal, it's just natural. We we want to help. So, right. Jenny, I know we don't have a lot of time, but I don't want to leave the the program without talking with you about something else that you that you're very adamant about, and that is about language, about body weight, and and the fact that we can talk about that in a way that can be stigmatizing. Can you venture into that a bit? Yes, and this was really a struggle for us in writing this book because language about body weight in particular can be very stigmatizing, and we didn't really have a, a good way to talk about it And because we just, when it comes to talking about body weight, we lack language that is not stigmatizing. It's just so hard to take the judgment out of, out of the words obese and overweight because when we use them, we're kind of automatically making a comparison to some alleged ideal. And that opens the door to shame and blame and discrimination. So in in this book, we address this issue, but we did not have a good answer to the problem other than to say that we know that it's a problem, that we don't have good words to talk about these issues, but we do need to talk about them and we need to um, be very mindful of, of the fact that Weight stigmatizing is rampant in the in the vegan community, and it's it's something we need to address. Well, how do you see it health wise? I mean, I know that there are teams of of studies that that talk about the health problems of being substantially overweight, but I think we translate that in in our layperson world into oh my god, I gained five pounds, I'm going to die. Where do you see this as a professional? Well, as a professional, I, you know, uh, it's, certainly this is another area, you know, as, as Patty talked about, where, where research is really conflicting. But we do see um, pretty solid research showing that people who are morbidly obese, who are carrying a lot of extra weight on, are at higher risk for certain diseases. It doesn't mean that... Um, that all of these people are going to get these diseases. It doesn't mean that they wouldn't get them otherwise. So um, we need to be a little bit careful um, uh, about about looking at those issues. But um, I think that the I think that the the more important issue is that somebody else's weight is not our business. Um, we can't be making judgments about whether someone is healthy or how they eat or whether they care about their health. They may or they may not based on, based on their body size. And so we need to back off a little bit from, from those kinds of judgments. 
I find that having been overweight for the first half of my life, I, I don't trust people right off the bat when they are incredibly thin and fit. And I know I'm thin, but <laughs> I'm, you know, I was looking for a personal trainer at, at one point. I had a little money to spare. And the manager at my gym recommended this woman and said, oh, you'll love Wendy. She's great. So I found a picture of Wendy with her eight packs and her little spiky haircut. And I thought, oh, she, she's going to be mean. And I wrote to her and said, so sorry, this will not work out. And she wrote back and said, oh, I'm disappointed because I'm vegan and I know you're vegan. And so I took the computer into to my husband and I said, what do you think about this? And he said, well, if you hire her, I want to watch. But when I got past <laughs> that, it was like, you know what? I have to give the thin fit woman a chance. And it turned out she was absolutely lovely and wonderful. <laughs> so I think our prejudices kind of go both ways. It's almost like we do better in life to walk around with bags on our heads so that we don't know what anybody else looks like. Yeah, it's really true. And it does go both ways. That's a, that's a really interesting story because um, it's, yeah, we make judgments about people based on how they look. And ourselves, too. We judge ourselves based on how we look. Instead of aiming for health, we worry about every wrinkle and every pound and every change in our body as we age. And it's a real waste of energy that could be going to our movement. Yes. Yes, absolutely. Well, I just love you guys so much. I can hardly express it. And and I just love how dedicated you both are. It's just absolutely stunning that you're out there, that you've written this wonderful book. Now, I do need to uh, say something about next week's program. Next week's program is pre-recorded, and it was very interesting. I had two guests that I wanted to have on, and both of them were unable to be on in the regular live show, but I didn't realize till we got them all scheduled that they're both psychotherapists. So I don't know how that worked out. One is, is Dr. Jen Mann. She's got a show on VH1, uh, a relationship program, uh, a show on Sirius XM five mornings a week. She's absolutely wonderful, absolutely vegan. And then we have Casey Taft of Vegan Publishers, who's very good about how to communicate veganism to others. So the reason I want to let everybody know about this show is that something that we were supposed to have said on that show didn't get said, and that is that Casey Taft is going to be appearing at the Asheville Veg Fest, which is coming up. So if you're anywhere near the lovely vegan heaven of Asheville, North Carolina, do check that out. It's um, a benefit for an animal sanctuary in those parts and they would love to see you so Ginny, patty oh my gosh thank you for all you do the book is even vegans die it's from lantern books wherever books are sold i'll put everybody's urls and info over on the show notes at mainstreetvegan.net so you can find out more about what patty and Ginny are up to and how their work beyond their books uh, can be of use to you thanks to everybody for listening god bless you eat your veggies thank you for listening to main street vegan join us every wednesday at 2 p.m central time as victoria moran entertains educates and inspires you on your vegan journey 
This program is sponsored by Main Street Vegan. To learn more about Victoria or to explore training with Main Street Vegan Academy as a vegan lifestyle coach, go to www.mainstreetvegan.net. That's www.mainstreetvegan.net. Never before in the history of humankind has change been so rapid. Jobs of yesterday are disappearing, and new careers are being discovered. Where competition once prevailed, there is now a pioneering spirit of cooperation and creativity. It has been said, real learning comes about when competition has ceased. When we release limiting ideas and fears, we are then free from a competitive living and the way is open for cooperation and harmonious living. By relaxing, letting go, and renewing your faith in positive and good outcomes in all affairs, you can make a harmonious difference in your ever-changing world. This message has been brought to you by the Association of Unity Churches International. To find a Unity Church near you, visit www.unity.org. experience the peace and joy promised by A Course in Miracles? Or are you still struggling to truly live your beliefs from moment to moment? Let Reverend Jennifer Hadley help you focus on your intent to be the love, be the peace through practical application by walking your talk. Experience the healing live every Tuesday at 10 a.m. Central on A Course in Miracles, Living the Love, Walking the Talk, only on Unity Online Radio, the voice of an awakening world. At Metaphysical Romp 2, we demystify metaphysics to help you live life at a deeper level. One of our key principles is the recognition that you always have the power to choose how you respond to any situation. Instead of asking, why did this happen to me? A better practice, which aligns with the metaphysical principles we share, is to ask yourself the question, how can I use this for good? We promise you'll experience a transformation in thinking that will reap huge dividends as you master the art of living metaphysically. For new perspective and spiritual insight, listen to Metaphysical Romp 2 with co-hosts Rev. Paul Hasselbeck, Rev. Bill Holton, and Rev. Cher Holton. Tuesdays at 2 p.m. Central Time, here on Unity Online Radio. away in the Unity Library archives in Unity Village, Missouri, you can find a secret treasure. They are the scripts from Unity co-founder Charles Fillmore's early days on broadcast radio, the teachings of Unity's founders, almost a hundred years old. Now, for the first time in history, you can hear them through the power of the Internet. Join Bob Brock every Tuesday at 10 a.m. Pacific. ...of the past along with historical background from the early days of the Unity Movement. That's Unity Classic Radio. Words from our past. Every Tuesday at 10 a.m. Pacific, 1 p.m. Eastern. Right here on Unity FM, 
the voice of an awakening world. We spend a third of our lives sleeping and dreaming, yet most of us have no idea what goes on during that time. I'm Kelly Sullivan Walden, and as a dream expert and best-selling author, I'm here to empower you to mine the gold from your nighttime dreams. Join me on the Kelly Sullivan Walden Show, part of the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network, available wherever you get your podcasts. Until we meet again, don't take your dreams lying down.